0: Hello and welcome to the Oxford Society for International Development's podcast series. My name is Maddie Whitehead, and I am a second year politics and philosophy student at the University of Oxford. I am also one of the South American events officers at OXID for this term, and I am delighted to be interviewing Dr. Ashley Rogers today on violence against women in Bolivia. Ashley is currently a lecturer in criminology at the University of Abate Dundee. Her areas of interest include Crimes and the Powerful, Critical Criminology, Women's Rights, Human Rights, and Conceptualizations of Justice. In 2017, Ashley completed a PhD on Women's Rights, Legal Consciousness and Subjectivity in La Paz, Bolivia. There, she engaged with Bolivian women throughout 12 months of ethnographic research. I'm very excited to be talking to her today about many of the topics she covered in her thesis specifically what violence against women is like in bolivia the laws that have changed since eva morales's election as president and why we should take a legal perspective when focusing on issues such as these hi ashley and thank you very much for joining me today hi maddie thank you very much for having me today i appreciate being invited along it is lovely to have you I would like to start by asking you what it was about Bolivia and La Paz which made you want to focus your PhD research there.
1: Well, this is actually quite an interesting question and it's probably the first question everyone asks. What is uh, a young Scottish woman doing in Bolivia, in La Paz? To be honest, I it's difficult for me to pinpoint the exact... Um, start of my, um, perhaps, obsession with learning about Bolivia. Um, But I can trace it back to perhaps the first masters that I did, which was at the University of Glasgow. So this was in human rights and international politics. Now, one of the modules, um, in one of them, I had a lecturer, Professor Mo Hume, who was discussing violence in El Salvador. And she was also talking about the research that she had conducted there. Um, and she mentioned Bolivia. I'm positive it was her that mentioned Bolivia. And at that time, so this was 2009, so of course this was a really exciting time in Bolivia. There had already been a number of changes. So Ebo Morales, Bolivia's first indigenous president, had come to power in 2006 uh, as leader of the al Socialismo. And then at the start of 2009, Morales was creating a new constitution. So I think this is what really hooked me, was a new constitution. I thought, wow, it's almost like just rewriting the values and ideas and beliefs of a society that you want to create, you know, like the ideal society. And I suppose my interest there was also because I thought about Scotland and and what if one day Scotland was perhaps writing its own constitution or or something similar. Um, So, of course, Bolivia was going through a huge um transformation a huge political transformation um which is often referred to as um in a lot of the literature as a process of change um so that was my my first hook to bolivia now la paz itself that was a bit unintended um my intention had really been to go to bolivia and explore violence against women and well actually That's a lie. It wasn't necessarily violence against women to begin with either. Ah, the joys of research. It was actually to explore women's relationships with the law. And my interest in their relationships with the law was largely because as I learned more about Bolivia, I learned more about collectivities, collective ways of life um, and collective rights and how often systems of collective rights have to match up in some way with systems of individual rights. And often there's a tension between the two. And I was interested in, for example, women's indigenous movements and so on. How do you marry the two aspects of rights together? So I wanted to do this and keeping in mind it was collectives, individual rights, indigenous and women, I had seen myself going to a more rural location. So in actual fact, the La Paz itself was when I arrived there and I was kind of stuck in La Paz for the first month because I had to do um, my visa application and so on. And you have to go through quite a lengthy process to do that. So that process itself took, I think, at the very least a month. Um, So it was a nice acclimatization phase, you know, so high up in the so high up in altitude. But while I was there and I spoke to people just randomly and generally, I realized that there was something quite interesting taking place in La Paz and that a lot of researchers, particularly foreigners to Bolivia, were arriving into La Paz, flying in, and then leaving again. So they were flying in to acclimatize, pick up some documents, and then they were off. And I thought, this is interesting. Researchers all seem to be hopping into La Paz and out, as opposed to staying there to research what might be happening. So that sort of explains my interest in Bolivia. um, And that grew since since that time, since 2009. Um, But then also specifically why it was La Paz that I ended up focusing the research
0: on. That's really interesting to hear. Thank you so much. I'd now like to ask you how you would define violence against women and historically, what has been Bolivia's experience with violence against women? So my definition of violence against women
1: really actually focuses on the use of that particular term. So there are lots of debates and lots of discussions around whether we use terminology that is I would perhaps say is broader, so gender-based violence, or whether we use violence against women. Now I used to perhaps use the two quite interchangeably. And I can't even recall if I did that perhaps also during my PhD. But certainly when I came to write, I tried to reflect the language that women in Bolivia used and and that helped shape my understandings of violence against women. Perhaps, I guess, I was also often caught up initially with the forms of violence that tend to be more obvious, that tend to be discussed more regularly, so physical forms of violence. But in actual fact, engaging with violence against women, which, as I mentioned, was, was not what I had necessarily planned to do. This was based on me arriving in La Paz, and um, I took part, I volunteered actually for the the local council um, during a march um, in the November and during that I I realised that this was a particularly unique aspect of something that was taking place in Bolivia, this transition Um, and women themselves said this is what we think that you should research. Uh, So of course I had a slight panic and I thought oh what are my conceptualizations of violence against women and of course this was in my second year of my PhD so I had spent a year exploring literature that really was not centered on violence against women. Um, I would say now my conceptualization of it and and this is where some of the the, the tensions come in as well and, and the aspects where we can celebrate um, around the Bolivia's uh, recognition of violence against women, but I recognise it as a, as a spectrum. There are many issues that feature there that we don't often think about, that almost become part of normal life for for all women around the world. Um, so it has to be in recognition of the psychological aspects, though the everydayness of violence, I think, is perhaps what's important. The The financial constraints that often face women that are also based on the broader Structural conditions of society, so in terms of my conceptualization of violence against women, for me it's a, a structural problem it's a problem with deeply ingrained patriarchal attitudes in society it's not an individual problem it's a you know a more public issue if you like if you want to take that um now in Bolivia, there had been many issues um. And one of perhaps the most prominent and one of the most talked about um, was violence against women who were um, members of the government. Now, this is a particularly interesting one because it often tends to be women who are in maybe a more high profile position, women who are becoming more powerful. And that just didn't seem to necessarily fit with the broader norms of society. Kind of almost contravened what was expected of women, women perhaps have a say when they're asked and they're permitted space, but be quiet otherwise. Um, Now, I wouldn't necessarily say that there are specific changes that we can completely attribute to Ebo Morales, for example, and that sort of shift in government. And I wouldn't necessarily like to to put all the credit there because largely the credit for advancing women's rights is really down to civil society organisations non-governmental organisations, women's movements and all of those people that take to the streets and and fight for their rights. So there have been improvements in gender parity in government for example, there have been um, specific laws created to address the specific violence against women in government, Um, there have been changes to um, land laws that allow women, for example, to to solely um, be named on land documents as opposed to being named as a wife or being named alongside a man. Um, and that obviously changes some of the, the power and control that exists, but not at all, um, because the, the broader structural conditions um, are perhaps still the same. the The norms and values haven't necessarily shifted. Um, But of course, we have Law 348, um, which is the law to guarantee women a life free from violence. So that's a real recognition that there is something specific about the nature of violence against women. And that sort of culminates, I suppose, in Bolivia's recognition of femicide. Um, So that femicide, the specific murder of women, but it recognises it as a crime um, and that's really rare I mean that that itself is is something to be celebrated, so historically, there have been lots of issues around women's rights um and and I guess there there still are
0: following on from that, why do you think that it's important to take a legal lens when thinking about the issues of violence against women and focusing on women's legal consciousness so
1: that's a really interesting question, and I suppose there are two different elements to it. So I would say that on the one hand, it is really important to to take a legal lens. Um, often, when we think about when we think about crime, when we think about wrongdoing and so on, we we automatically use language that relates to justice, that relates to crime. Um, that relates to um, seeking some sort of recompense or um, a recourse for justice, and and laws often a way to do that. And I suppose I've often considered it as what else do we have, really? If we don't have something, if we think about law more in its textual form, in that specific piece of paper that that law is written onto, it often highlights, not necessarily where society is, but perhaps where society wants to be. And so it can be a really useful, I think, also historical tool to analyse the changes over time in society. Now, across the world, we've seen a, a huge turn to legal recourse to deal with violence against women. And of course, now there are also a lot of calls to Um, recognize femicide, like Bolivia has, as a crime itself. And we've got criminal justice systems that are there to maintain law and order, right? Or well, at least that's what they should be doing. Um, And I'll maybe come back to that point. Um, So using a legal lens and taking a focus on the development of laws, so in this case, perhaps criminalization, can mean that there are There is a space created almost for a greater recognition that something is a problem. People will talk about it more and so on. I would say in terms of legal consciousness, why that's important is because the law is simply text on a piece of paper. And what does that really mean in the everyday lives of women? So it's fab, this is great. A law is created to deal with violence against women, to criminalize femicide. And in Bolivia, for example, it um, highlights a spectrum of violence, a whole range of different categories of violence that women um, might fall victim to. But actually, if you can't access that law, if you can't use and access the criminal justice system that's there to protect you, and if in fact, that criminal justice system simply re-victimizes you, that all becomes part of your legal consciousness. It becomes part of the way that you relate to the law, the way you think about the law, the way that you use language in relation to the law. It all affects your sense of self. So the law has been created, but the law also creates you. You are the legal subject. And the way that it frames you and characterises you and documents you all shapes your identity as well. So I think that's why why those two things are very important, why a legal lens and legal consciousness is. But importantly, why I think it's not, and this is going to actually be summed up really nicely by Sally Englemery, who says that the law provides a place to contest relations of power, but... It also determines the terms of the contest. And that's where the notion of power becomes more important. So there are other reasons why perhaps a legal lens is important, but I think it's more important to emphasise that when we do adopt the language of the law and when we do adopt the language of crime and in criminology, more traditional forms of criminology, What it means is that we're using the language of the powerful and we're often then using the language of those who perhaps subjugate and oppress us in the first place. And so we then start feeding into that particular system. And I suppose I didn't really think about it too much when I was doing my PhD, but I realise now in hindsight, you know, when everything becomes clearer, that I perhaps was taking a bit more of a semiological approach to understanding what was taking place in Bolivia in relation to women, in relation to their challenges of accessing the law and so on. And a semiological approach means thinking not so much about the notion of crime, but the notion of harm. So it's taking a much more social harm approach. And when we do that, we see everything perhaps even more clearly, we don't just see what is defined as a crime. We don't just have to stick to using that particular language and we don't have to fit within the constraints of law. Because when we see it as harm, we see all of the smaller, all of the but just as harmful aspects that might have led to that particular crime, for example. And I think if I was to go back in time, I would perhaps completely embrace and adopt a zemiological approach but of course I'm several years on now and hindsight is a really wonderful thing.
0: That was really interesting to hear, thank you. Now we're going to focus a little bit more specifically on changes within Bolivia. So you mentioned Law 348 earlier but I was hoping that you could explain to our listeners what it is and what it was that triggered its creation. So Law 348, um, actually
1: its enactment was a really quick turnaround Um, often the development of law takes a really long time Um, and it did take a long time if we think about the struggles of civil society organisations to have violence against women recognised by the government and recognised in law. And that's what law 348 is. It's the law to guarantee women a life free from violence. So this specific law was established um, because of the events of February the 11th, 2013. Um, on this particular day, a Bolivian uh, journalist named Anna-Lee was murdered. And she was actually murdered by her husband who was a police officer. And she was murdered in front of her son in the city of El Alto, which is on the outskirts of La Paz. Now, her husband stabbed her 13 times, I believe. Um, Her mother then appeared, obviously hearing a lot of the the commotion, and he stabbed her twice too. Um, Their son, who witnessed all of this, I believe was was five years old. Um, And of course, then left without a mother. Now, the husband was discovered actually two weeks later, so about five hours away um, in the Yungas region of Bolivia, um, and he had actually hung himself. So the media coverage and the protests that followed this particular case, because of course it was very high profile, it was a Bolivian journalist, so in terms of those connections and relationships with the media, they were already there. So the more that the, the media show details of this particular story, and, and what's interesting about, um, I've noticed in Latin America when I was there, is that the detail with which things are shown and explained on TV and in radio in Latin America is far greater than we ever have here. I'm not necessarily sure I, I fully always agree with it, but maybe it's because it just makes me feel uncomfortable you know, it often shows. It will show women. It will show you know um, murder scenes and so on, um, and that sometimes just feels really uncomfortable. More because I'm obviously thinking that the family see that too. So, people took to the streets for days on end, and of course there were a number of blockades that then shut down the city of La Paz. Um, and in actual fact, it's quite easy to to shut down the city of La Paz um, by blocking off a few streets. And I always wondered, did people really take notice? And upon one particular journey, um, I was was on a bus and there was a blockade. And I said, you know, do you, do you think these blockades work? I could tell the driver was a bit annoyed that there was a blockade, other passengers were annoyed. But then there started to be murmurs about, well, what is this? What is this protest about? why are we at a standstill? Um, And so word started to spread along um, about what it was and who was protesting and so on. And I thought, actually, this here, this is interesting. This is how these protests and marches also get the word out to people who become caught up in them, even if they're not taking part themselves. So it was because of this that there was then a pressure, a rise in pressure on the Bolivian government, on Evo Morales, to to do something about this. Um, It was heightened to kind of emergency state. And civil society organisations were really at the centre of that. And they pressed for the development of a particular law. Now, of course, they had been fighting for this for such a long time anyway, that a lot of the groundwork had already been done. Um, so they were accepted, a number of them, into government to help formulate this particular law. And this law criminalizes femicide, yeah, which I mentioned earlier, feminicidio, which is very, very significant. Um, this, again, had been something that organizations had been fighting for, um, and organizations around the world are also fighting for that. But. What's really interesting about the law is that instead of just focusing on physical aspects, it highlights a range of others. So psychological, financial, political and so on. And I think where that becomes all the more relevant is for raising awareness that violence comes in many different forms and that it's not often a specific one time event. It's often a series of perhaps smaller events that are also violent in nature. Um, this particular law, I think, to raise more awareness, done something that was really quite interesting, whereby it, it mandated that media uh, stations, so radio stations and television, also make sure that they have dedicated space to discussing this particular law. So adverts about the law were really common. Um, there were posters everywhere, there were signs up, there were community um, sort of meetings held. And you heard it on the radio. You actually heard them discussing, there would maybe be a short sound bite, and then you would hear them discussing this particular law and almost like an advert that you would have for, you know, a a product. Um, And it was to to make sure that there was more widespread awareness. And that's why also they used radio um, to reach into some of the the more rural areas. the other aspect of it that's particularly important in Bolivia was the creation of a dedicated police force. Um, so they have the Felceve, which is the, the dedicated police force for violence. There were specific stations set up for this as well. So that's where if you had been a victim of violence, that's where you would go to report. Um, and those stations were then Supposed to be I'm not sure how they are now it's it's been a few years, but supposed to be a sort of joined up working with more kind of social services, legal services and agencies and psychological services as well, so it was a a kind of multi agency approach that was being designed um and and so to be quite honest with you, on paper, this law is i can't really fault it at all and i and I wasn't looking to fault. In any way, Um, it's most certainly a lot to be celebrated and and perhaps even replicated elsewhere. Um, And I certainly know that that Scotland, for example, in in a domestic abuse build, certainly has some of those elements that I always thought was was really fantastic in in Bolivia. Um, So I think there's a lot we can learn from there. It's perhaps just a bit more of a challenge when we think about how that becomes applied in everyday life.
0: Thank you. It's very clear that law 348 was an important change within Bolivia and I'm very interested to hear that it was advertised in the way that it was. But as we were talking about legal consciousness and as you mentioned, it's not always the case that the law can be applied to women as it's written on paper. So I'm just wondering what are the main constraints that women have to accessing the law within Bolivia and using it for their own protection? Well, some of
1: the main constraints, um, and and there are many, um, and they're quite complex and, and they often are quite interrelated. But I would say one of the very first constraints is that although this law was established and highlighted these different forms of violence, It doesn't necessarily mean that women recognize themselves in that piece of law. So, a lot of the violence is just sort of everyday. It's kind of accepted. It's part of the norms and and, and values in society and and gendered relationships that have come to be the norm. So, I think actually the first constraint is recognizing yourself. as a victim, or perhaps if you want to use the language of of survivor. I didn't really have anyone actually, interestingly, in Bolivia use that term or prefer that term. Often the terminology of victim was preferred. So I'm I'm using that terminology to reflect that. So. If you don't see yourself as a victim right away, the law is not going to be something that you're going to use, Um, and that comes under that sort of aspect of legal consciousness as well. Now, if you do recognise that something isn't quite right, that something has been wrong, that you have been harmed in some way and that that understanding fits within the framework of the law, your next challenge is what do you do? Do you go to the police? Now, often if you are in a situation of violence, your movements are being controlled, your um, actions are all being controlled, your money is being controlled. So the the chances of also making it to a police station can be very limited and very constrained. If you do manage to make it there, there are further constraints. You are essentially entering a very patriarchal and male dominated institution. Now I say this, even with the creation of the dedicated police force and the dedicated police station, um, I actually visited one of the police stations in La Paz and we were welcomed into the police station. Um, I, I have absolutely no no issues there. Um, we We spoke to people in the police station. But it was a very intimidating environment to walk into. If you were a victim of violence and you had managed to get into a position where you could go to the police station and you had managed to build up that strength and 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 will and so on to do that, I'm not sure how you would feel necessarily having walked in to that environment. It was very loud, Um, there were some male police officers kind of playing football or playing with a ball in the courtyard, which was of course making really loud noises against the wooden and metal sort of enclosure that was round a central courtyard. And so even during an interview um, that I was conducting in the police station, that was all you could hear. That's in fact, all you can actually hear on the recording. And it's quite intimidating. If you think if someone is coming from a situation of violence, there's probably already been a lot of loud noise, a lot of shouting, a lot of banging and so on, that that's perhaps not the environment that that they really need at that particular time. So if you do get that far and you are engaging with the police, there then comes up issues around um, corruption. Now, many of the women that I engaged with in this research in Bolivia highlighted that particular aspect of corruption, and that's often why they just didn't even go to the police in the first place. Because potentially, everybody knows everybody, so even in even in somewhere so highly and densely populated like La Paz, everybody knows everybody else somehow, um, that sort of six degrees of separation. And if you go to the police, it's probably likely that that information would make its way back to your husband. If you were engaging with the police, there were often other requirements um, that were financial that I think create a really big strain for women. So this was the other thing that women and um, non-governmental organizations, women's organizations highlighted as being a huge constraint was finances. If you don't necessarily have the money because the finances are being controlled in your relationship or you aren't the person in the family that makes the money and therefore you don't have the money to use, it can be very difficult to to access the law and, and follow through with it. So one of the women that I interviewed, for example, talked about being asked for the money for the piece of paper that the complaint was written on. So the police will obviously document the complaint, you give the details, but that needs to go onto a piece of paper. So they wanted money for the piece of paper. But she had just fled from her house. She didn't have money. Um, so she didn't have anything. Um and then it becomes a kind of form of, you know, IOUs. It just all sounds very strange. I, I understand, but there you become almost embroiled in a system where you have to give the money you have to give money to the police for for example um paper. You have to give them money if they need to go from one place to another. So let's say, for example, you've maybe seen a doctor because of injuries that you've had and they need to visit the doctor to take a statement. They will want money to make the journey to visit the doctor. So they will want money for time, money for the car journey, money for fuel costs, all of that kind of thing, which is something all of those things are really part and parcel of, of the job of being in the police. And now a lot of that is perhaps also because they're not paid well enough, um, and that leads perhaps to to more forms um, of corruption. It leaves the space open to that, um, and that's certainly what what Bolivians were telling me. Um, I guess the 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 big the big one, the big constraint is impunity. If women don't feel that anything will really be done, then they're really questioning whether or not they want to put themselves through that entire process. And I suppose that's where the legal consciousness aspect revealed a lot of that relationship with the the justice system. And and I use the word justice kind of lightly because we 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 talk about the notion of criminal justice, and that's not really what that's not really what women wanted. It was all they felt they could fight for because it's almost something. Um, tangible that you can focus your attention on but actually what they really wanted was a broader form of social change and social justice Um, so that also contributes I suppose to a lack of engagement with that particular law and with law in general, with dealing with formal spaces of law, with formal government institutions and so on there's a real distrust between I think the people and the state, um, and I guess that's where civil society organisations form a really important role in between the two. Um, but yeah, there are many constraints, and and I and that was all I really heard of um, were all the challenges. And in discussing the law, it was always celebrated. You know, people would say, "This is really great. This is such a great advancement for us." But here are all the challenges, and that's such a shame to hear. Um, And progress in that will, will, of course, be slow.
0: I'm also sure the constraints were probably a lot higher in the rural areas compared to La Paz. And I was wondering if you have any ideas about what can be done in Bolivia to combat these constraints and make a better environment for women to be able to report their abuses?
1: I think there are a few specific things that could be done. Um, And there are other models that could be drawn on to to help develop um, some of these solutions. So first and foremost, I think um, a better environment for reporting is important for those women who who do decide to report, who do decide to make a complaint of violence. Um, Now, Kerry Carrington, for example, has done amazing work in Argentina on women's only police stations, a space where women can go to report violence, uh, gender-based violence. And that is very important. And I think taking that model or adopting more of of the lessons, you know, the solutions that they've adopted, the lessons that they've learned over time, I think would really improve the police stations and perhaps set them up to be, um, it's not necessarily a friendlier environment, but an environment that's more conducive to engaging with women in the way that the law states that it will. I think also there needs to be more funding. Now, I I mean, I suppose that's something that we say for everything, there just needs to be more funding for everything, but more funded support for women that really values and makes use of that more joined up approach that the law seeks to implement. So the, the connections between legal services social services and psychological support services as well um i mean one of the biggest as i mentioned one of the biggest constraints was accessing the law based on you know your financial capacity or inability to be able to pay for things and that's an area that really needs to perhaps be addressed more so more legal aid um available for women um i mean broadly the the, the biggest thing overall is changing people's attitudes around women and and valuing women and changing the language that's used, the way that women are perceived. And that's a bigger, longer, tougher change um, for all women (laughs) across the world. That's a long change. And it's not that, you know, it's so long that we can't make smaller steps. I think it's important, perhaps, to address the messages that are being portrayed in the media. Um, So a lot of women, for example, often talked about telenovelas and those sort of soaps, uh, as we would call them, and the way that women are often portrayed there. And that often sets up this idea that women should be submissive and quiet and um, almost that sort of. Complementary, although that's you know a terrible word to use here, but in relation to a man, so you know that idea of um you know if the man is more aggressive and outspoken and in control that the woman should almost be the opposite. And then those two then fit together nicely. And so women often talked about how telenovelas, um, yes, they're they're so dramatized, and everybody knows they're so dramatized and exaggerated. But it still feeds into the way that when young boys and girls are growing up, that they start to construct their ideas around women, what's expected of women, what's expected of men. So it's not just about addressing perceptions of women. I think it's also about addressing issues of masculinity and what it means to be a man. And that what it means to be a man doesn't necessarily have to be these aggressive forms of, of mas- hyper masculinity and aggression and so on. Um, I think those are the, those are the key changes I think that need to take place and, and how we get to there I suppose is something that, that not only Bolivia struggles with but, the, the region the the world over really struggles with that. Um, but small small changes and small steps as we go I think is is key.
0: The final thing I'd like to talk to you about today is the actual process of doing your PhD. Some of our listeners may be interested in pursuing a PhD in a field which relates to international development. So is there any advice that you can give them, whether it's about the process of writing a PhD or actually undertaking fieldwork in another country? So this is
1: something that
0: I still think about now
1: years on from conducting the research and it's probably the thing I think about most about my presence as a Scottish European young woman in Bolivia conducting research. Um, And I'm not sure I always find peace with it, to be honest, I suppose when I first began uh, applying for funding, I was funded by the Economic and Social Research Council for this PhD under its socio-legal stream. And I hadn't quite thought about the complexities of, not the practicalities, not not the complexity of the practicality of doing a PhD in Bolivia. I thought about things like language and I could speak Spanish and was developing and continued because I don't think you ever fully learn a language. We're always learning, um, and I'm certainly nowhere, nowhere there. Not even with English. Um, but I, I'd thought all of those things, but what I hadn't thought about was the broader structures of power, the, the whole idea of being a foreign researcher in another country, engaging with its politics and all of these issues, and the opportunity to do so, the privilege to be able to have that funding to to live in Bolivia to engage in that research and to also know that i could leave and and come home that that's not my reality every single day and i think that's a real challenge for me and i suppose there perhaps are some things that i would go back and do differently and i almost as soon as I arrived, realised some of that. So I would probably absolutely spend my first year of my PhD differently. I would develop from the very beginning, a more participatory approach to research, meaning that the research would be formed not by me, but by the potential participants themselves, if I was to still be conducting that same piece of research. And I suppose that's where when I got to Bolivia and women said, oh, you should focus on violence against women. I thought, well, who am I to come all this way and say, no, 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 I want to focus on X, y, Z. I thought this is really important. So I think that's a key piece of advice that I would give to anyone. That I give to all my students um, myself is that I think you have to adopt some of these. If you are going to be doing that sort of research, you have to engage with those participatory approaches. Then of course, there are the practicalities, the the living in another country for a year. So I decided to stay there the entire year and not return home at all. Um, A couple of reasons. Emotionally, I was leaving behind my husband and family and so on. And I thought, oh no, if I return home and have to say goodbye all over again, that's too emotional. I'll just stay there. But I also wanted to make sure that I was just as immersed as I could be in the environment. Um, And of course, you build up your own networks and your own friendships and your own family, really, I suppose, when you're there. Um, The other aspect would be language. If you're going to do that sort of research, you know, speak the language or be learning the language. um, I think it would be very difficult to do without the ability to engage on that sort of one to one level. What I did do was I did hire an assistant that helped me schedule some of my interviews with organisations and the police and the government, Ministry of Justice and so on. And that was really helpful. And she was actually my Spanish tutor over there as well and became by far one of my best friends. And she knew then so much about my research. So she would often come with me to those because I was so fearful that I would miss something. I had that one chance to do that interview with the Ministry of Justice, that I would maybe miss something or that I had that chance at the police station. And I, in my kind of trying to not translate everything into English, take some notes, make sure the recorder's on, all of those things, it was very useful to have her. So I would say if you have the opportunity to do that, um, then that is really useful But other than that, it was a more ethnographic approach. So I didn't worry too much about not picking up on something with women there because I knew I would see them the next day, the next again week. And that was a bit easier. So I suppose there are those elements that are about the practicalities that you need to think about of doing a PhD in another country and safety and and everything that goes along with that. But then there's also the broader aspect about privilege and power and the construction of knowledge and who gets to construct knowledge who what are the claims to knowledge what knowledge systems are being valued so there are those two different aspects um, and i think going back in time i would still very much like to have done the research that i did but i would perhaps have adopted a far more participatory approach um, from the very beginning
0: that was some incredibly useful advice to hear Thank you so much for your time today. I've really enjoyed talking to you. And thank you so much for
1: having me. It was a real pleasure and it was very lovely to meet you. And I hope you found it interesting and that some of my advice at the end was also useful.
0: To all of our listeners, this has been Maddie Whitehead, the South American Events Officer at the Oxford Society for International Development. I hope that you've enjoyed this podcast today and please feel free to keep up to date on all of our social medias for more interesting discussions in the future.